I just I think about the familiar faces when I was flying up here this weekend. I was thinking about the people and relationships, the youth volunteers, uh, just so many men and women that showed me what it looked like to walk with Christ and who encouraged me and gave me a desire to want to know God more and to know His Word more. And so, I really, it is a privilege to get to be back here, and my heart really is filled with gratitude to get to be with you all and to get to preach the Word. And, uh, and if, you're, if you're a little unfamiliar with just uh, what God's done over the last number of years since I've been gone, I, have, I moved to North Carolina for college and then spent uh, four years in college, and then 10 years in North Carolina working for a college ministry. And so, I had the opportunity to share my faith, disciple students. Uh, my wife and I have been married for about 11 years. We have four kids. And four years ago, in 2018, the Lord uh, opened a door for us to go to Florida. There's over a million college students in the state of Florida. And so, we have spent the last four years laboring there. And God's just been so faithful uh, to, to uh, sow seeds of the gospel and to see fruit come out of that. And so, I, I say that to encourage you because we could not be doing what we're doing without the partnership that we have with you, Cornerstone. So, thank you for your prayers, your generosity. Uh, we, we need a team of people around us investing in the work that we're doing. And so, every story of a student's life being transformed in Florida is directly connected to the work that you're doing here. So, thank you. I just wanted to say that before we jump in to today's text. So, we've got a lot, to, a lot ahead of us, so let's go ahead and dive into the passage. You know, in preparation for preaching… I was able to listen to a few of the sermons that Kyle and uh, Pastor Tim have been preaching through this summer as you guys have walked through the book of Luke. And it's been encouraging to listen as, as I've followed along. And today's passage comes right on the heels of the ser- Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus, if you were following along, if you've been here and listening to some of these sermons, then you know that Jesus has been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been healing, his ministry has started, and he just finished teaching the Sermon on the out to his disciples and to a group of followers that have been around him. And so we're told here in this passage in Luke 7 that he enters into Capernaum where he would spend a lot of time doing ministry and miracles and preaching and teaching, and he's greeted by a group of Jewish elders who have been sent to Jesus by a Roman centurion. Now, I know in a room like this, there's probably a a range of you all. Some of you might be very familiar with the Bible, and you've read this passage, you understand the context and what's going on, but maybe for some of you, this this is new. Maybe you've not read this passage before, you're a little more unfamiliar. And one of the things that if you read through the Gospels you see is in the life and ministry of Jesus is that He was constantly being interrupted. If you you just read through the Gospels, you see Jesus was going one place, and then someone would reach out and touch him and want to be healed by him. Or he'd be gathered in one context, and he's having dinner with a group of people, and in walks a prostitute. And so there's all sorts of interruptions. Jesus would be interrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees who were trying to nail him on how he was violating the law. And and I was thinking about even there was a little person, Zacchaeus, who climbed up into a tree and was scouting out Jesus. And so all of these interruptions were taking place. And one of the amazing things about Jesus is that he was never inconvenienced by these interruptions that he would patiently stop and engage those who wanted time with him. And this really is a unique distinction between Christianity and other religions. If you think about this, most religions are about you performing and somehow proving that it's, you're worthy of getting time with God. 
And here's Jesus, the Son of God, who even though he's being interrupted, wants to spend time with people that want to be near to him. And so I wanted to say that before we get further into the passage tonight, just to encourage you that you're not a disruption to God. If you feel like maybe you're interrupting him or you're bothering him, you don't, don't feel that because he wants to spend time with you. He wants you to draw near. He wants to minister to you. You're not an interruption to him. So in one sense, it's not surprising that Jesus is immediately approached. He hasn't even gotten into Capernaum. He hasn't started ministering there, and he's immediately being approached by a group of Jewish leaders. Now, this passage is a little bit surprising for a number of reasons that I want to highlight. The first is that Jews and Romans, think about this, Jews and Romans were a lot closer to being enemies than they were to being friends. Now, remember this, when Jesus shows up, what did the Jews expect out of Jesus? They thought, here's the Messiah. He's come. He's going to deliver us. He's going to deliver us from underneath Roman oppression. So Jews and Romans didn't really get along, let alone here's a, a Roman soldier who has authority and power. So it's a little strange and surprising that Jesus walks in and here's these Jewish leaders who are being sent by a Roman soldier to, to appeal to Jesus to come heal a servant. So that's one of the things that's kind of strange and surprising here in this passage. The second thing is that Romans, uh, the Romans were typically brutal to their servants and slaves. In most situations, servants were treated more like property than they were like people. One commentator on this passage said this. He said that a typical soldier would have discarded his dying servant as flippantly as tossing an orange peel in the garbage. So it's, it's strange that here's this Roman centurion, this soldier, who's wealthy and has power and influence, and yet he actually cares about this young servant or slave that's, that's underneath his authority. It's another surprising kind of strange thing as we think about this passage. The third thing is that Romans were not engaged typically in Jewish culture or religious endeavors, and they certainly didn't love the Jewish nation. So think about this. What we're told about the centurion in this passage is that he's a Roman soldier, and he's giving money to help build a Jewish synagogue. That, that's a strange thing. That's surprising. So all of these things are, are, are abnormal. I mean, this would be like, I was thinking about this, this would be like a former Lehigh football player who was giving resources to build a Lafayette football stadium. It just wouldn't make a lot of sense. You'd be like, what's going on here? Something's not right. This is surprising and strange. So all of this is the backdrop to the most profound surprise of all in this passage. Listen again to what Jesus says in verse 9. This, this really is the biggest surprise. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, I want to unpack why this is so surprising. And I want to pause here for a second and ask, when, you've mar when was the last time you marveled at something? When was the last time that you saw something that was so amazing and beautiful that you just were stopped dead in your tracks? Whatever you were doing, whatever you were thinking about, whatever conversation was going on, you just stopped and you couldn't help but take it in. 
And I think the reality is we don't often experience that. It's rare that we marvel at something. I was thinking about this idea of of marveling, and the first thing that came to my mind was the Marvel Universe or Marvel Comics. So I'm I'm not an expert when it comes to all the Marvel movies. Uh, There are a lot of people that have have seen all the movies, and they know the order, and they, they know all the ins and outs. I don't know all those. I've seen some of them. But I'm guessing most of you are at least familiar with people like the Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, the Guardians of the Galaxy or any of those, you know, Marvel movies. You guys get the idea. But I I was thinking about this. Why is it called the Marvel Universe? Well, it's because each one of these characters is amazing and powerful and unique in some kind of different way. And when you see them and their power is on display, you can't help but look on in wonder and amazement. They're, they're marvelous. Like, they're amazing that, uh, in, in who they are and what they're able to do. Now, obviously, this is fictitious. They're not real characters. But how many of us, when we were kids, and especially young boys, love putting on superhero costumes? You know, when I was a kid, I was thinking about this. Now, you know, I've got four young kids and my boys like superheroes. And you can walk into Walmart or Target and there's like endless costumes of whatever superhero you want. When I was a kid, it was like, there really weren't costumes. And so you had to make your own costumes. And I remember being five or six and taking, having a buddy over at my house and taking our, our bath towels and wrapping them you know, around our necks and having them tied with a, a little clip. And we would run around the house like we were Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and act like superheroes. And I think the same is true about all sorts of things. Think about what did you wanna be when you grew up? What did you want to be? Maybe it was a teacher or an astronaut or a doctor or a professional athlete. Well, part of the reason you probably wanted to be one of those things is because you marveled at someone who embodied those things. Like, man, it's amazing to think about going to space. I would love to do that one day. Or, man, for me it was, man, I, I want to play basketball like Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's amazing. I want to be like Michael Jordan. I would love to play basketball one day. And I got to high school and I realized I am not 6'6", and I'm a little bit uh, less dark skin color than Michael Jordan. And so I realized that's probably not going to be a reality for me. But if you, if you think about your own experience, we all wanted to be something. And I say all of this to emphasize how profound it is that Jesus says he's marveling at the faith of a Roman soldier. Think about this. this is God, the Son of God, and he's marveling at this Roman soldier. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in all of the Gospels, Jesus only marveled at two things or two times. Once was in this passage in Luke 7 when he marveled at the centurion. The other is in or Luke 6. The other is in Mark 6. Sorry, this is Luke 7, the other is in Mark 6, where he marvels at the lack of faith in his hometown of Nazareth. So the two times that he marvels, both of them have to do with faith. One is the faith of the centurion, the other is the absence of faith in his hometown. I thought that was interesting. What what does that tell us about Jesus and the things that he, he wonders at? Well, they have to do with faith. Faith is a big deal to Jesus, either the presence of faith or the absence of faith. Mark affirms this in Mark chapter one when he says that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he says the kingdom of of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, Jesus came to to talk about faith and belief. They were important to him. He wanted people to believe in him and ultimately to believe in his father. 
You know, if you want to know what the primary theme of this passage in Luke 7 really is all about, it's, it's all about faith. Who has access to faith? What does faith look like? And what does Jesus have to do with faith? And here's what I want to do with our remaining time. I just want to talk about two questions. The first is what does the centurion's faith reveal about us? And then secondly, what does the centurion's faith reveal about Jesus? So what does his faith teach us about us, and what does his faith teach us about Jesus? We'll take the first one and look at the the faith of the centurion and what it reveals about us. Well, there's really two things that his faith reveals. One is desperation, and the second is limitation. I'm going to unpack these for us, desperation and limitation. The first, desperation. You see, the centurion has gotten to the, had gotten to the place where he recognized that there was nowhere else to turn. He had this servant who was sick. We're told by Luke that he was at the point of death. Essentially, what this meant is that death was imminent, that there was no way out. Death was coming. Death was knocking at this man's door. And so, the centurion realized there is no amount of medicine that's going to be able to bring healing to his body. There's no amount of resources that are going to be able to fix his condition, and there's no amount of time that's going to be able to prolong his life. You see, the centurion was at a place where he was desperate. There was nowhere else to turn. He didn't know there was nothing that he could provide, and so he knew that he had to reach outside of himself to find someone who maybe could help in this situation. Really, these ideas of desperation and limitation, they go together. The the centurion also knew that he was in a dire situation and he lacked the resources to help his servant. He knew he didn't, he didn't have what it took to bring healing to this young man. So he knew I'm, I'm facing a huge problem and I don't have what it takes to do anything about, about it. All I can do is reach out to someone else and hope that they can help this man. So where did he turn? The centurion turned to a traveling Jewish teacher who he had heard supposedly had the authority and power to bring healing. We don't know exactly how much the centurion knew about Jesus, but he probably had heard rumblings that Jesus was healing people and that people were actually being healed of their sicknesses and diseases. And so Jesus, so to, to the centurion, Jesus was probably the last ditch effort. Like if, if this guy is gonna be healed, then maybe Jesus can do something about it. Now, I think this is important. It's important for us to consider that every human being faces two realities which remind us of our desperation and our limitations. Remember, faith reveals that we're desperate and we have limitations. And those two realities are the realities of death and judgment. You know, there's gonna be a moment when all of us are at our moment of death or our point of death. Some of us are gonna know when that moment has come. It might be slow leading up to it. For others, it might be come in an instant. And in that moment, when that moment comes for all of us, what will our faith be in? The Bible makes it clear that if, if our faith is in anyone or anything other than Jesus, then our faith will be found lacking. Think about this. If, if our faith in that moment is in our health, well, our health is depleting. It's leaving us. It's literally leaving our bodies. In, in that moment, if our faith is in our fa- financial security, the, the amount of money we have in our bank account or in our retirement, well, in that moment, that's going to mean nothing because if we're about to depart from this world, what, what good is that? If our faith is in a friendship or relationship or other people, those relationships aren't going to last 
when death comes. You see, the only thing that brings hope in the face of death is the promise of resurrection. And that promise can only be provided by the one who's conquered death for us. See, Jesus' power over life and death is the only thing that can bring us hope in the face of our mortality. But, but here's something that's important for us to consider. Death is actually not our greatest enemy. We also face a second reality, and that's judgment. You see, the Bible doesn't say that for all of us, we are at the point of death. What the Bible actually says about our spiritual condition is that we already are dead spiritually. Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in the sins and trespasses in which we once walked. And that means that we have another problem. Not only as human beings are, are, is death a reality for us, but also we're, we're dead spiritually apart from the saving work of Jesus. And that's, that's a huge problem because we've been separated from God because we have rejected Him and chosen to find life apart from Him. Paul tells us in Romans that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Not only has Jesus taken care of our first great enemy, death, He rose victorious from the grave, but He's also eliminated our second great enemy, judgment. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If you want to understand, what, what did Jesus really come to do? He came to, de to destroy death, and He also came to de defeat judgment. And, he, and on the cross, He took all of our sin and all of, all of our wickedness, and He replaced it with His righteousness. So we, don't, we no longer have to fear judgment because we have the righteousness of God. We've been declared righteous and justified before Him. So, for the, so faith for the Christian is acknowledging that we are desperate, needy, and that we lack the resources to deal with death and hell. So what should we do then? Well, we should place our faith in, in the person and work of Jesus. You know, I have a, a friend and a mentor of mine down in Florida, and uh, he just helps me think about spirituality and Christianity and the Bible differently. And uh, I remember getting together with him and a group of guys in his office, and we were at the church, and he asked the question, he said, what does faith sound like? What does faith sound like? And I remembered thinking, like, I'm not sure exactly where he's going with this. So, uh, so you know, I'm trying to think of a, a good answer, and some other guys are trying to think of a good answer, and all of a sudden, he just yells, help, help. And I, I, my first instinct was like, what's going on? Is he okay? And then I realized, that's what faith is. Faith is, for the Christian, is saying, I can't do it. I'm desperate. I, I have limitations. There is nothing that I can bring to the table that I'm facing death and I'm facing judgment and there is nothing in my power that I can do about it. And so faith for the Christian, if you want to know what does it look like to become a Christian, it's recognizing that you need Jesus. You need a Savior. You need, you need His resurrection power. So just a few applications in light of this first point. One, have you acknowledged the la that you lack the resources to deal with your two greatest enemies, death and judgment? Do you realize you don't have what it takes to deal with death and you don't have what it takes to deal with judgment? You know, if you're not a Christian here, we're, we're glad that you're here. This is a great place to come and learn, to understand more about Jesus, to, more, to understand more about the Bible. But I wanna ask you a question today. How confident do you feel about faith, facing death and judgment? You see, we all put our faith in something. 
So if you're not a Christian and you'd say, I, I don't have faith in Jesus, then you do have faith in something. So when, when you face death and when you think about the reality of judgment that's coming, what are you putting your faith in? And why not put it in Jesus who can help? Lastly, the last application here is, have you cried out to the Lord and asked for help? That's, that's not a one-time thing. I think sometimes we think about Christianity as, you know, once in my life, I, I get on my knees and I cry out to the Lord for help. But the reality is, is that's a daily thing. That's an hourly thing. That's a moment-by-moment thing. We, we, every day, there are opportunities to say, help, Jesus, help me. I don't have what it takes in this moment. So in what areas do you need to cry out to him and ask for help? The second thing that, that I said we wanted to ask is, what does the centurion's faith reveal about Jesus? One of the cool things about this passage is that there's some things about the centurion's faith that tell us about who Jesus really is. And I want to highlight three of them. The first is that the centurion believed that Jesus had the ability to heal. Verse 3, it says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, remember, th- this servant was not just, you know, he had, he had some kind of virus. He wasn't feeling that great. You know, just hopefully he was going to feel better. He was at the point of death. So the, the centurion believed that Jesus could miraculously bring healing to him, that he could bring him, ba- in essence, back to life, that Jesus had the power and authority over both sickness and death. The second thing we see about the centurion's faith is that the centurion believed that Jesus alone was worthy, that Jesus alone was worthy. This is important. You know, when I was studying through this passage, uh, it was helpful to see that the word worthy comes up twice in the passage. I don't know if you caught it, but think about this. What did the Jewish elders try to do with Jesus when they went and met him, when Jesus entered into the town? Well, they essentially tried to present an argument that the centurion was worthy of having his servant be healed. So think about this. Here's these Jewish leaders, and they're, 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 standing, before, uh, they're standing before Jesus, and they're presenting a case for why Jesus should come and heal this Roman centurion's servant. And here's their case. Two things. He's worthy to have you do this for him because, one, he loves our nation. So he loves the Jewish people. You should come heal this, man, this man's servant. Two, he's the one who built us our synagogue. So look what he's done. He spent his, t- his money, his time, his resources, and he's built this place of worship for us. I think this is interesting because what this reveals, now we don't know exactly what was going on here, but it reveals that it's possible the Jews were trusting in him being a good person and doing good things. Now, how many of us are just like those Jewish leaders? We secretly believe that because we're good people and because we've done good things, that Jesus should do good things for us. We're worthy. We're worthy of having him do this. You know, I literally had a conversation this afternoon with a non-believer, and we were talking about this, and this, this issue came up, and he said, you know, I mean, as long as you're a good person, God's going to be content with that, right? Right? He'll be good with it, as long as you, you know, try to be a good person. I think so many of us that at, at the core of how we live, we really think that, that if we're a pretty good person, we try to do good things, 
And if we're a pretty good person, we try to do good things, then somehow Jesus should, he, he owes us one for what we brought to the table. He, here's the problem. There's all sorts of problems with this way of thinking, but, but a couple of them is that this living, living this way only results in one of two things, pride or despair. Think about this. If you think that being good enough is what brings favor, then if you're living really well, then what happens? Oh, I'm living a lot better than most other people. Like, I feel pretty good about myself. Like, and I'm, I feel like I'm being blessed by God because of how good of a person I am. Well, that's not healthy, and that's not biblical. And then the second thing that happens is if we're not living up to those expectations, if we're not being a good person or being good enough, then what happens? We're, in, we, we're brought to despair. I, I'm, I'm just miserable. I'm terrible. I'm never going to be good enough. The problem with that way of thinking is neither of those ways of thinking have to do with putting our faith in Jesus. This is not the message that Jesus came to preach. Jesus' message is that we're not worthy. None of us are worthy. That, will, that we will never be worthy on our own and that he alone is the one who's worthy. You know, there's so much freedom in being able to be honest about our brokenness. Why, as Christians, I just want to encourage you, you don't have to have it all together. The, the, the essence of being a Christian is acknowledging I don't have it all together, but I want to put my faith and trust in the one who does have it all together and because of what he's done for, you, for me. If you think that Christianity is for the holiest people, then you've missed out on the message that Jesus is proclaiming. Remember, Jesus didn't come to heal the healthy. He came to heal the sick. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for the rebellious. You know, this is so hard for us to grasp because we live in a culture and we live in a world where so many of our institutions are predicated on performance. They're built on this idea of if we perform, then we'll be accepted and welcomed in. Just think about the, the essence of a country club. What, what, what is the dynamic at a country club? Well, if I have enough social status and enough resources, then I can get access to something. And so if I can prove my worth, then I can enjoy the benefits of being a part of that group. Or think about it for college students. You know, it's the idea of if I, if I just do this well on my SATs, and if I just get these grades and I can show my extracurricular activities and all the ways that I'm engaged in community service, then maybe this school will accept me and they'll let me in. And that's all sorts of groups. So even just the job search process of looking for a job, it's like if I have the right resume and I have the right experiences and I say the right things in the interview, then maybe they'll accept me and let me in. But here's the reality. The church doesn't function like that. The church is much more like a support group. It's much more like AA. What do you do when you join Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, the first thing is you acknowledge that you have a problem. That's what it means to be a part of that group is to say, I don't, I don't have it all together. I'm a mess and I need help. So what do you need to do to join the church? If you're, if you're not familiar with Christianity or you're new to Christianity, how do you get access to be a part of this people and these, these people is to acknowledge, I have a problem. I have a problem called sin and, I, and because of my own sin, I'm separated from God and I want to be brought near to him. And I know that I don't have what it takes to actually experience him, but I know that Jesus died for people like me that are far from him, but that want to be drawn near. You see, the, the church is a hospital for sinners 
It's not a resort for the righteous. This is the beautiful thing about what the centurion said, is the the Jewish leader said, hey, we want to present to you this centurion. He's worthy. And what does the centurion say? The first thing that he says when he sends his friends to go back is he says, I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. Stay, stay away because I, I don't want you to get too close to me. His humility and confession was an indication that he was placing his faith in Jesus who was worthy. He recognized the separation between him and Jesus and he was like, I don't want to get too close because I realize there's a difference between him and me. You know, the centurion's response is is similar to so many other people's responses in the scriptures that come into contact with Jesus and with God. Think about Peter. When Peter, I don't know if you are familiar with the story, but when Peter was on the boat and he was questioning about what it would look like to follow Jesus, he was fishing and he comes in, they didn't catch anything and Jesus says, I want you to go back out and cast the nets to the other side. And Peter's like, Seriously, Jesus, like I've been out there all night. We haven't caught anything. But, he, but what does Peter say? He says, at your word, I will do it. So he, he goes back out in the boat. They cast the nets to the other side. And what happens? The nets are filled. So full that they need more nets and more boats. And the nets are literally breaking. And the ship, the boats are literally sinking. And, and I don't know if you remember what happens next. But Jesus moves toward Peter. And what happens Peter bows down and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You see, his response when he came into the presence of Jesus was the same thing. I don't, I don't deserve to get near to you. Stay away from me, Jesus. Think about Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah has this incredible vision and, and God's, uh, God's filling the temple and he, there's an earthquake and, and he's feeling and experiencing the presence of God. And what's his response? He bows down and he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's the response is when we come into the present, that's what real faith looks like is to recognize I'm not worthy. He alone is worthy. The third thing we see about the centurion's faith is that the centurion believed in the power of Jesus's word. The centurion says in verse seven, therefore, I did not presume to come to you but say the word and let my servant be healed. You see, not only did the centurion believe that Jesus could heal his servant, but he believed that Jesus could do it without even touching him. That you don't don't even have to come to my home. You don't have to see him. You don't have to touch him. All you have to do is if you speak it, it will happen. He recognized that Jesus had authority over life and death and that his word had the power to save him. So a few applications in light of this centurion's faith. One, are we trusting in our good works and good deeds or are we trusting in Jesus? Are we really trusting in Jesus and are we recognizing that our worth and value comes from what he's done, not from what we bring to the table? Peter tells us in Acts that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, that Jesus alone has the power to save. Jesus alone is worthy. You know, I want to end with two thoughts in conclusion. Uh, One encouragement and then one exhortation. Here's the encouragement. Faith, this kind of faith, 
is available to everyone who believes in Jesus. Not some, not the special people, not just the Jews, but to everyone who believes in Jesus. I mean, this is one of the profound surprises of this passage, is that Jesus had spent all this time with these Jewish, Jewish people, his, his disciples and others, and most of whom were Jewish, and he walks in to Capernaum, and here's this Roman centurion. And the gospel is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. You see, anyone who recognizes their desperation and limitation and unworthiness before Jesus can run to Jesus. This is the surprise of Jesus, is that God has made the gospel relevant to all of us, regardless of if you think, I don't, I'm not good enough. I haven't been in church long enough. I don't know my Bible well enough. I, I don't know if I belong in this group. Jesus is for you. Jesus is welcoming all who would recognize that they're desperate and needy and have limitations. Now, the one exhortation I want to give you in closing, who do you know that's close to you and far from Jesus? Who do you know that's close to you and far from Jesus? You see, that's the servant of this centurion. He had this person in his life, this, this servant, who was close to him, but he knew was away from Jesus. And, and in a physical sense, he knew that if I could get Jesus to him, then maybe healing could happen. But I want you to think about this in spiritual terms. Who do you know that you have a relationship with that's close to you, but you know that they're far from Jesus? Can you do what the centurion did? Can you bring Jesus to them? Can you, can you be an advocate for them? Can you go and take the good news of the gospel to them and tell them about Christ? I'm sure all of us have, have people that we could advocate for, people that we could reach out on their behalf and bring Christ to them. You know, I think about the centurion pleading on, uh, for others, the, the Jewish leaders and then his friends, go, please go ask Jesus, could he bring healing to my servant? What would it be like for us to pray like that? Jesus, would you please bring healing to this person, to my friend, to my family member, to my coworker? They need you. They're desperate. They're needy. And, and they have no hope in the face of death and judgment. Jesus, would you come and bring salvation to them? You know, I want to end with this story. I have been doing ministry on the wrestling team at one of our campuses, uh, one of our college campuses down in Lakeland. And I've, there's a guy on the team that I've been spending a lot of time with, and he recently came to faith about a year, year, year and a half ago. And one of the first things when he came to Christ that he was burdened for is he was burdened for his family, and in particular, his sister. And his sister was going to be a student, a freshman last year at the same school, and she was playing soccer there. And, and I know all year he was praying for her. He was bringing her to stuff. He was, he was trying to get her near to Jesus. And one of the exciting things that happened this summer is we, we do a leadership project every summer in South Carolina, and, and Coleman got to bring Mackenzie to this project for three weeks. And at the project, Mackenzie got to hear the gospel over and over and over again. And one night, it finally clicked, and she realized, I, I don't actually know Jesus but I want to know Jesus and I want a relationship with him. And so there was a night on, on our project this summer where Mackenzie gave her, gave her life to Christ and we got to celebrate that. And one of the powerful things that happened is the next day, uh, Mackenzie was talking to Coleman, her brother, and, and she said, Coleman, I don't know that mom, I don't know that mom knows Jesus. And she was visibly burdened for her mother 
because she was like, I don't, I don't, she's been around Christianity, but I don't think she really gets the gospel. And so it was this powerful display of here's, here's somebody that it's a day old in the faith, and what's their reaction? I, I've been brought near to Jesus, and I want other people who are close to me and far to Jesus, far from Jesus, to be brought near. And so she was like, we got to share with her. We got to go home and we got to share the gospel. And it was, it was so encouraging to Coleman because he's like, yeah, Mackenzie, I've been praying for you and mom for the last year. So let's, let's go do that together. So I, I share that as an encouragement to you to, to go, to, to reach those who are near to you but far from Christ. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, just the, the encouragement here of this centurion soldier the surprise of someone who we wouldn't expect to have faith in Jesus, who has this incredible, marvelous, wonderful faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would learn from the centurion, that we would be humble, that we'd recognize our desperation and our limitations like he did, and that we would long for others to be brought near to Jesus. Lord, would you give us faith like this, faith that, that not because there's something powerful in our faith, but because there's something powerful in the object of our faith, and that being Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.